1: What a world, what a life, what? A day, Saturday, April 23, 2022, episode 93. Featuring Chris Vanderveen from Nine News, Michael Bailey in Craig's Lawyers Lounge, Dave Gunders, our troubadour. We gab about Passover. Happy Passover. It continues. And his great song, Whatever the Future May Bring. I am obsessed with this unjust war, Putin's war on Ukraine. It is barbaric, and it replicates Bobby R. And we have a Bobby R. Park here in Colorado, right where Hamden meets Savannah, Yale and Parker. I had never been there till Tuesday. I went there with our troubadour. You can hear us talk about that. And I rode my bike back on Thursday. Sunday, there's big gathering memorializing the Holocaust. A lot of Colorado dignitaries will be there. 11 a.m. Sunday, Bobby R. Park. Chris VanderVeen has been around Colorado for a long time. Same with Michael Bailey. They both grew up here. Chris in Southeast Denver, T.J. Kidd. Now he's a bigwig at Colorado's newsleader, Nine News. Give a listen and you will find out that maybe this is the new Leader of Nine News and maybe he's one of the most important journalists in Colorado. I think so. Here's Chris Vanderbeen.
2: Gosh.
1: Lc.com.
0: now back to the Fred silverman show
2: this is chris
1: hey chris it's craig hey craig you ready to do some podcasting sure how about it are you at nine news right now i am the men's room i assume
2: <laughs> no the newsroom but i'm gonna walk out
1: that's cool I drove past your high school coming to my studio. Nice, Thomas Jefferson High School.
2: It's uh, It's. I haven't been by there in a long time.
1: I was wondering about your relationship with GW. Right, you kind of lived near Monaco and Yale, and uh, yes. you had to be looking north up Monaco, thinking, "I wish I went to GW like Craig did."
2: <laughs> I never did. I never did. To be honest with you.
1: Oh no. <laughs> What about Creek? Did you ever think maybe I should go a little east to Creek? No, because we I was in I
2: was right. in living in Denver. I couldn't go to Creek.
1: You know, when my I wife, went my yeah. wife went to Creek. Did she? I had girlfriends yeah. from Creek. My wife went to Creek, but Bear Creek. Nah. So see how Cherry Creek, because they feel entitled, they take the name Creek. And I always thought when I went to GW that they're kinda spoiled, entitled people at Creek, and then I had my kids, and they had the Creek experience, and I learned that I was right all along. (laughs) All along. Anyway, are you all situated nicely?
2: Yep. Good to go.
1: Well, let me give you a proper introduction as a major media figure in Denver, Colorado. Not only did you grow up here, you have... Risen to great heights at the News Leader, 9 News. You're about to celebrate your 20th anniversary. I would say it's a steady job for you.
2: You know, it's weird how the things sort of turn out. I remember when I came in here in April of 2002, I was in my 20s back then, and I thought that this would be sort of, I don't know, maybe I'd be here for a few years and, you know, here we are 20 years later, and, uh, and I still get to do the job that I want to do, which is great. That's that's the best part.
1: And at 9 News, I was a little arrogant as a prosecutor. You can ask uh, some people who went against me. They'd probably say that. But I was arrogant about the fact that I worked at the Denver DA's office, not some surrounding county, but in the action, the action that the big city brings And uh, I always thought we were a little better. And honestly, for the last couple of decades, hey, that corresponds to when you've been there. But probably even before, Nine News has been dominant in Denver. Why is that?
2: Well, I I always tell people, particularly people who are new here, that we are the beneficiaries of people who have come before us. And I believe in that strongly, is that there's been a long history of really great people, who have come in this building and then the building we were over in Bannock and, and really done some amazing things to sort of like, not just sort of report on this community, but be a part of this community. And I think that's really been the secret behind Nine News is its willingness not only to sort of report stories and have really great people and really, really, you are know, just sort of remarkable people, but also some sort of people that are willing to sort of like, hey, this is our community too. And sort of recognize that and to continue that tradition
1: hey when you grew up in southeast denver going to thomas jefferson High, i bet you were watching the news i don't have to talk to you about my memories because you have memories who did you watch was, and why
2: i was a news nerd uh i was i was the weirdo in like seventh and eighth grade that was watching nine news on a fairly consistent basis i love stormy rotman i love carl akers Um, Carl Akers was sort of that first sort of introduction to like sort of what television news could be. And I remember watching him and then watching Channel 9. And this was I mean, this was the station that I watched growing up. And um, and so when I got the job offer to come here in 2002, it was very much a surreal experience to sort of be like, hey, I'm working at the station that when I was a news nerd in seventh grade, I was watching. It's cool.
1: I'll tell you what's cool, and I don't want to bury the lead any further. I want to put it up toward the top because you, by virtue of being online news and in a senior position, you are the pandemic guru in this community, dare I say Colorado, Colorado's news leader. You go to Chris Vanderbeen for information about the pandemic, and I've been going around town, and you have, no more masks at Dia. A uh, federal judge in Miami is the pandemic over?
2: It is not, but it is transformed. Uh, it's very much different than where we were two years ago. And I, I've got a—I mean, I've got a twin brother who works here in town, who's a emergency room physician. And you know, back go back into March of twenty twenty. When there was just so many questions that we had, and my brother, who's sort of like seeing a number of patients starting to come in, and there was sort of no real great knowledge as to, well, how does this spread? Am I gonna be safe with PPE? Am I gonna be able to just sort of protect myself and my family from getting it? And we've learned a lot more about COVID, we've learned a lot more about the virus, and most importantly, we've learned a lot about how to protect ourselves from it. And I, I you know. People can have all sorts of opinions as to what's happened over the last two years. But I think looking back on the advancement of the vaccine, we're going to sort of herald as one of the great advancements of the last few decades, this idea that we could build a vaccine in a short period of time and really, and really offer people a really great level of protection. And is it foolproof? No. Does it work every time? Absolutely not. But what, what I said early on, and I still think it rings true, is that the vaccine is really, 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 really good at preventing you from getting really, really, really sick. And that's what we needed it to do. And because of that, it's transformed. So you ask, is the pandemic over? And I say no, because we still have a large number of people that are still getting sick. Here in Colorado, the numbers are just starting to go up. They remain very low to where they were three or four months ago, but they're starting to go back up again. And that's a sign that the virus isn't done. The virus is still going to do some things. And I think it's going to do some unexpected things. And I think that's normal for this type of situation. The key and the key differences now is that we know how to deal with it so much better than we knew back just two years ago.
1: How about your role? Do you feel the weight of what I put on you? You are on (laughs) nine news. And uh, honestly, I don't know anybody on the local scene more outspoken on the pandemic. You take strong stands, as you just did. Hey, if you really want to be protected, get a vaccine. And I've noticed that, that it's not a both sides thing on most local media. It's get a damn vaccine. And you have uh, news people advocating that, some in commentary, some as kind of public service announcements. What do you think about all that?
2: Well, I think it's OK, because what happens is that we, we as reporters, I believe the central role of reporters sort of look at things and sort of like, where does the evidence pointing you? Where is the data pointing you? And the data and the evidence is really pretty remarkably clear. Again, is it foolproof? No. Can there be problems associated with it? Yes. And I think people should be educated in terms of the, the, the low risk that, that, that every vaccine carries with it. But at the same time, I think it's okay for reporters to come out and say, here's where the information is pointing us. Here's what we have found out so far. And you don't have to both sides that issue. You don't have to both sides an issue of has the vaccine been effective. It absolutely has been effective. And you can't sort of you can't sort of both sides that because if you start to both sides that issue then you're giving much more credibility to an uh, an other side that doesn't deserve it, to be quite honest with you, because they haven't presented the evidence to sort of back up their claims. I mean, there's been all sorts of goofy ideas that have been put forward over the last two years of things that have been proven and then, more importantly, things that have been disproven. and yet. People who, who sort of work in this sphere sort of recognize that it takes so much more effort to sort of go against the things that have already been disproven because they continue to circulate. And that's a problem. That's a, far, that's a, that's a much uh, wider-reaching uh, problem than just with COVID. That's sort of the reality of the world in general. But when it comes to these type of issues, yes, absolutely, and I felt no pushback from my bosses and I think most importantly from the people that I deal with. I mean, look, I, I, I take a lot of flack. Uh, any reporter who's covered COVID over the last two years has taken a tremendous level of flack from people saying, you're a hack, you don't know what you're talking about, you're sort of in that, and this is my favorite, that I'm getting paid by big pharma, I'm the big in the pocket of big pharma, and I'm still waiting for that paycheck. But at the same time, it's like, this is, this, this is what we're supposed to do. Like, Reporters aren't here to make friends with everybody. Reporters are here to sort of come out and sort of like say, here's what we know. Maybe we're so the idea is like getting us as close to the truth it, when you don't know the truth. And maybe you'll never know the full truth, but it gets you as close to that truth as possible.
1: I'm trying to size up just how smart you are. And I'm weighing in that you went to TJ and you went to see you, <laughs> right? And, and that's good. And I'm trying to figure out, uh, I I know you understand numbers because your exposés on hospital billing versus what insurance companies pay, my God, you are fantastic. So you get numbers, you understand percentages, and I think I do too. And what you are saying, if you're playing the percentages, you get vaccinated because the evidence is overwhelming. It's a matter of numbers. Now, here's where I'm trying to figure out if you're smarter or I am. Uh Because you attempted calculus after, you know, the kind of easy arithmetic that you and I are doing here that some people are incapable of, but we could do that. You attempted calculus and decided I better go into journalism as opposed to being my brother with an emergency doctor sort of thing. And I didn't even take calculus because I think I was a little smarter than you realizing that i was going to be a lawyer and not needing calculus and maybe you should have realized that a little earlier
2: <laughs> so i was in, i was like in addition to being a news nerd i was sort of a math nerd growing up and i was much better at math than i ever was in english but i also decided early on like i was going to go into a different i was going to go in a field that didn't require a lot of calculus now keep in mind so i've got a twin brother we both went to thomas jefferson high school and my mom was very very proud of this is that so my brother uh it was number one in his class. He was the valedictorian of Thomas Jefferson High School uh class of ninety two. And guess who was number two? Guess who finished runner up to his to his brilliant twin brother? And fortunately it was me. <laughs> but I was that I was You're that kid. one, I was two. We were one, too, in the class. There was even like a little newspaper article about us at the time. All right. About being those kids.
1: Can I top this? Okay, my sister, 13 months younger, one grade behind me, class of 75 GW, valedictorian, much bigger school than TJ, a little better academic reputation, especially (laughs) back then. And then a year earlier, what do you think I was? Where were you? Not anywhere near number one or two. I I was number 18, and I think that there were 16 females ahead of me. Nice. Yeah, so I I was still pretty proud of that. But uh, my sister, she got a bachelor's scholarship and all that, and she went on to be a board-certified internal medicine veterinarian, and she listens every week. Say hello to my sister, Nancy.
2: Hi, Nancy. And I will say this, too, and I don't, I don't want to gloat too much, but I, I, too, am a Betcher Scholar. I got a Betcher Scholarship in 1992, which was very, very formative in terms of allowing me to go to college without having to sort of put together all of that debt that, that so many of my, my peers were sort of like saddled with oh even after, after these many years.
1: You are gifted. But then again, I have to question your intelligence, and I love my time <laughs> In Boulder, CU Law School. It was great, sort of a small school and perfect. But undergrad, why not go to Colorado College? You have a free ride to any school. CC costs about four or five times what CU did. Why not avail yourself of
2: the best? Because I was a CU kid. I was like, I think, plus they had, they had a journalism school that I wanted. I mean, I, I knew that I wanted to go in journalism at the time. I, my brother, my older brother, had gone to the University of Colorado. He was in the journalism school at the program at the time. And I just said, that's what makes sense to me. I hear all of that call. You can sort of make better advance use of that better Scholar money. But at the same time, plus I loved Boulder. Like, I mean, I, I, I sort of have a love-hate relationship with Boulder these days. But like Boulder at the time, I loved it. And I loved this idea, this great, amazing campus. Um, I was. I'm also a sports fan, so I had this ridiculous idea of like going to a college because they had a great football team, and um, it was fun. I, I really, really enjoyed my time at University of Colorado, and I I, I I don't regret it at all.
1: You would have loved CC, the Colorado College Catalyst, is quite a campus newspaper. Admittedly, without the reach of a huge CU audience, but you've done pretty darn well. My sister Tucker Betcher. And she went to CSU. So how smart is she, really? As well, anyway.
2: We're but we're making no CU, CSU, CC jokes. I think college is college, and it's all good.
1: <laughs> no, but at CC we have a motto. Even though they won the national championship, DU sucks. All right, that's <laughs> and they chant CC sucks, and that's been true at a hockey, but. <laughs> What's going on in Nine News? I heard you've been bought and sold. It's sort of like the Broncos being for sale. Who's going to buy them? What are they going to do with them? Tell us about this.
2: Yeah, it's it's the first time that I've been through. I mean, one of the great things about, you know, it, this this is very common in television, but I've been here 20 years and I, this I've not been through a sale. And so... Um, you know, it's, it's a, there's always lots of questions as to what that looks like. It hasn't been approved by the FCC yet. It still has to be approved by the FCC. So there's lots of hurdles that still have to be overcome, and nothing is guaranteed. But it's sort of like people ask questions, and people sort of wonder, okay, what is that going to mean? And what is that going to mean for the future of the station? I, you know, I, I'm not going anywhere as long as they'll have me. And I think as long as, you know, as long as someone is stupid enough to keep me around, <laughs> I'll keep doing my job.
1: Doggone it. Uh, I have the privilege of writing for the Colorado Sun, and uh, they had to move on when Alden Capital ruined the Denver Post. I mean, a lot of us are worried that Nine News might get bought by somebody who will do that. Am I right to worry about that? Uh, in- internally, do you guys worry? And e- even worse than uh, the bean counters who are going to strip it for profits. What about the companies that have a political agenda like Sinclair or one of those groups? Could my news ever fall prey to that?
2: I hope not. I hope not. I I think one of the things that I've always sort of really, really, really respected. So we're, we're owned by a company currently called, it's called Tegna. And what happened, I can't remember how many years ago, it was a number of years ago where Gannett, we were owned by Gannett for a number of years and then Gannett and Tegna split. And Gannett really took over the newspaper division of the company. Like USA, I would always tell people like who, when people would ask me years ago, they'd say, who do you work for? I'd say, Gannett, what's Gannett? And I said, well, they own USA Today. And so that was sort of made it, made it easy to understand. But then the split happened and then we became Tegna. And, and I would say we, we are what happened when the company split up and we are just the television division. And so it's upwards of like 50 stations right now. Um, scattered around the country. It's a large ownership group. And one of the things I've always really loved about this place, and I think there's a misunderstanding with it when it comes to journalism, is that are you told what to do? Are you told what stories to cover? Uh, Is there pressure from a sales department or whatever on what you need to cover? And again, I've been here 20 years. And I mean, if, if you drive by our building on Spear, we're at the corner of Spear and Logan, is that, there's the upstairs floor. And that's really the sales aspect of what we do here at Nine News. And that's vital, obviously, to getting make sure that somebody like me has a paycheck. And on the bottom floor really is our news operation. And it's sort of symbolic, but it's also not symbolic. It's sort of like it's this idea that there is this separation between the business aspect of a news operation and the television journalism aspect of that. And to keep those two things separate is really vital to sort of uh, ha- having that independent voice in journalism and and i think i mean i'm optimistic and i maybe i'm foolishly so and you may interview me a few years from now and i say, boy did i read that wrong but i I, i'm optimistic that what we have in place here is is working at a level that somebody that even an outsider comes in and says i think they've got a good thing i don't want to mess with that too much Again. Maybe I'm being ridiculously optimistic, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for this station. And certainly there are lots of questions and there's lots of concerns because we've seen what's happened in the newspaper side here in Denver. And it hasn't been great um, with uh, what, what's happened to, what happened to the Rocky Mountain News, what happened to the Denver Post, what uh, continues to happen to the Denver Post. There's really great, amazing journalists who work over the Denver Post that in many ways haven't deserved what they've gotten over the last few years. And so, of course, you don't want that to happen. And there's a changing landscape in journalism in general. Journalism, journalism the business side of journalism, is just different today than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. We're not like the, the kind of revenues that came in all those years ago. Are, have, there's more competition, and that's that, that. In some ways, that's a good thing, but in, in, from a business side, it it's, can certainly be more distressing. But I want to believe that I think that this will work itself out. But you know, we've got some time, and I think what's clear from the from from the people that are going to buy us is that um, as long as it's approved by the FCC, and they've told us that they'll keep things in place, and there's not going to be major changes for a year, and so we'll hold them to that.
1: Gosh, um, I I just hope that uh, TV news can hang on, and 9 News keeps churning it out at high quality, but it's not just ownership that sometimes dictates what's going on. It's ratings, and you need an audience, and the audiences have become so bifurcated that I'm sure you hear it. You hear it on talk radio. You didn't back in the day, but oh, I'd never watch Nine News. Uh, You know, Nine News is this, Nine News is that. And that's coming from the right for the most part, accusing Kyle Clark, everybody over there at Nine News of being part of the mainstream media. Where do they get that from? The guy who says they're the enemy of the people. And all of a sudden, the people who are listening to you, maybe they lean more to the left because the people on the right have abandoned you. So, does there become a danger that you start catering more and more to your audience? And as an example, it's like late night talk shows. They don't even pretend to be both sides, and I agree with them. But they're giving up on half the audience. See what I mean?
2: Yeah, and I agree with that. I think there's a there's a real danger in that. I, I think we don't we don't serve sort of one political ideology in Colorado. We serve sort of a journalistic purpose, which is wider than that. And I think we have to sort of recognize, I, I'm one of those journalists who believe strongly that, that journalism hasn't done everything perfectly. Um, we at Nine News haven't done everything perfectly, that we have made mistakes. There are things that we have done in error. And I think it's one, it's, it's, it's critical for us to sort of own up to that. Um, and then two, as I tell our staff all the time, you, you get your audience back. You, you don't get your audience back um sort of with with sort of like with slogans and everything like that you get your audience back one story at a time and you sort of prove to people one story at a time that you're worthy of coming back to and i I think for me that's the goal here is that you know judge us on our product not who you think we are and i think that's been a real problem over the last few years is that there's been this idea that that whatever people think of national news and that and that, that, that there's all sorts of issues with national news and how national news covers politics. And we could talk about that. But I think in the long run, what's been interesting is this phenomenon. And this has really been happening in the last few years is that people now associate all forms of journalism with sort of that sort of quote unquote, fake news ideology. And so we've been the, we've been, the, we've been the beneficiaries sarcastically saying about, What's, what's happened on that level where people have accused us of being fake news? I remember I was doing a story on a doctor that wasn't very complimentary of the doctor, and why?
1: Because um, he wasn't your brother.
2: Because he wasn't my brother, and he was doing some some not so great things, and um, and we and I had heard through through a third party that he was he was telling people around him that we were fake news, mm-hmm. um, and it was interesting to hear that for the first time. Somebody that we were doing a story on that was a subject that was, was calling me fake news, and everything that I, I had against this doctor was, was sort of backed up by fact. And yet, it became this sort of excuse to sort of excuse bad behavior, and I, I think that was con- that's concerning, but it also, how it sort of manifests itself. This hatred that people have for local press, and for, excuse me, for national press, and mostly it's sort of on a political level, because they hate how politics are covered, and they, they feel like their side isn't covered enough, or, or whatever. And how that lends itself into local news. And I think what people don't realize is that almost all local news reporters never touch politics. <laughs> like, I, like, we don't cover the presidency. We don't cover what's happening on a national level. We cover what's going on here in Colorado. And occasionally sort of it dips into web stories in particular. But for the most part, our reporting staff doesn't concentrate on national politics yet we're assumed to sort of be involved in that and then some ways in some ways it's infuriating because it's like this is not who we are this is not who i am and i really hate it when people assume they know my politics because of where i work or who i am and what my job profession is and they make you
1: yeah they make you part of a big conspiracy theory right that you are operating on some secret agenda
2: it, it makes the world easier to understand, Craig, this idea that somebody is pulling the strings. And it, it's sort of, well, well, then it makes sense. And like, no, it's, it doesn't work that way. And like I said, worked here 20 years. I've never been told a story to cover specifically that I needed to cover. And if I didn't, I'd be in trouble. Um, that's, that's important because I think I, I believe strongly in this idea that a newsroom can be independent. And it needs to be independent. And it's sort of – and we, we, are not, we are not a PR wing for any political party, for Democrats, for Republicans, for whomever. We are here to sort of bring people closer to the truth, this idea of what is fact and can we get close to that, a better understanding through perspective and contextualization. Can we allow our audience to sort of better understand sometimes complex problems? That's our goal. And like, like it was really true during COVID, a really very difficult time in this country's history. And There will be many books written about what's happened over the last two years. And our job was to sort of help perspectivize, to sort of add context to what was happening, not to scare people. And I think journalism didn't do a great job on, on that level when it came to COVID. There was a lot of scaring going on. But if we were doing our jobs correctly, we were giving people – I would always say we're arming people with the information they need to make better decisions for themselves and their families and that in the long run is i think a very good mantra for journalism as a whole is to arm people with information so they can make better decisions in their own lives and i think if we if we operate on that level i think it will help our reputation which has been uh, which has been solid over the last few you know for the last few years many years my my own father would ridicule the press all the time, because he would tell me, he goes, the press lost the Vietnam War for us. And I, the, <laughs> the more you learn about it, the more you understand it's a heck of a lot more complicated than that. But it's like there, there has been a long hatred of the press in this country for, for, for decades. But it's transformed over the last few years. And I, that's what I worry about, that transformation, because it's not just it's not just they don't see the world as we do. It's that they're actively conspiring against us. And that's just,
0: I don't believe that. And and
1: that's what I mean. That's why there's the venom in you. I hear former colleagues of mine on the radio seriously suggest, oh, here comes the midterm variant. Like, it's all political. And uh, Fauci is a political tool. And uh, no wonder people believe it. They hear people they want to respect on the radio saying it and I, I expect you've heard it what do you make of it
2: well look i i listen i, I do listen to talk radio a lot for better or worse and um i, I like but what, what what you cannot escape anymore from talk radio is this constant drumbeat of the press is the enemy the press gets this wrong the press is working against this the press is awful the press is evil the press is you you can't go five minutes now listening to talk radio or to cable news programs, particularly in Fox News, without this idea of hearing the press is the problem. And I, if, 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 if anybody came up to me and had a conversation with me, what I would say is the press isn't perfect. The press can be part of the problem. But to simplify the problems that we have in this country by sort of making a scapegoat out of the press is just an oversimplification of... Oversimplification of the problems that we have as a country that are much deeper than that. And what I would say to them is don't allow somebody to sort of – don't allow them to sort of simplify that problem to the point where they're saying that's that, – that's, if we just fix the press, then we'll fix the problem. That's so much deeper than that. And when people are telling you on a constant level that the press is the problem, they're talking down to you. They're treating you like an idiot. Because they think that that's the only thing that you can understand, that the press is the problem and nothing else. And I think that's ridiculous because there, I, I know colleagues in this business. There are people that are doing amazing work right now on a daily basis in national and local journalism. And it's just – it's incredible work and it's like that's what I, – I, I sometimes I wish we could do a, a better job of telling our own story about what journalism is about. Um, I love talking, as you can probably tell, I love talking about journalism, the future of journalism, and what we are and what we need to be. But I think at the end of the day, if you're allowing someone to talk down to you and tell you that all of your problems are a result of a bad, maniacal, evil press, they're treating you like an idiot and you deserve better.
1: And honestly, I believe you when you say you're dedicated to putting the truth out there. And I know when I was a prosecutor, our mission was to do justice. Which is pretty close to telling the truth, right? Getting it out there, telling mm-hmm. the story. And that's a beautiful thing. And I don't want to be accused of talking down to you, but I am still pretty competitive over the GWTJ thing. And that <laughs> term, fake news, do you know where it came from?
2: Uh, I think I, you now you're putting me on the spot. And I used to know this, and I, I suspect it was you'll a tell guy me.
1: named Craig Silverman. Not me, but a Canadian guy who wrote a book called Regret the Error, and he came up with fake news, kind of what the tabloids did, and he put it in an article, Brian Stelter magnified it, and I had both of them on my show explaining how they used fake news, and then Trump stole it and put it back on CNN and guys like you, so... I'm not that Craig, but I've had him on my show, and I met him up in Montreal, and he's a cool guy in journalism. I think he just caught up in that problem at BuzzFeed. It's an unstable business, but not for you. Let's go back to you, and I noticed you said you addressed the staffers because you are a higher up there now, and one of the things that's made 9 News great is the stability of leadership. I didn't really know Roger Ogden, heard about him, but I did know Patty Dennis back in the Jean Benet days when I was there all the time doing, doing commentary during the OJ trial too. And then and Nicole Bapp, she's been there a long time. She's just leaving and that may leave you as the top guy. What do you think?
2: <laughs> Heck no. I never want I never want that target on my back. But I, here's what I'll say is like, so when I interviewed here at the station back in 20. 2002 um, my one of my final interviews was with roger ogden it was very intimidating because roger ogden is 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 really sort of one of the masterminds of what's taken place in denver news and he worked over here he worked at, at four bit and it's just he's brilliant and i remember being so intimidated to have my interview with him and he was great he's just a really great remarkable guy um, i was hired by Patty Dennis as when she was the news director at the time. And 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 she's just sort of this sort of Brilliant mind of sort of how news works, and you could always go to her and sort of go with her with a conundrum of like I'm sort of spinning with this idea in my head, and she would ground you and allow you sort of like give give you a really smart answer. And we're just like and the same way with Nicole Vapp, This idea that I could go to Nicole because I work with her when I w- when I was with the invest- when I switched over to the investigative team here, and she's my boss. And I could always go to her with a conundrum or some sort of story or idea or problem, and you get this really sort of great down to earth answer. And that's what I—that's what you sort of need um, as a journalist. And it's like it's—it's it's intimidating to be—I'll be honest with you—to be, be the guy that, like, eventually after twenty years, you sort of—I guess you sort of like—you have to sort of assume some sort of leadership role here. And it's intimidating because I'm used to going to other people, smarter people than me, and ask about what I need to do. And sort of, it's weird to be in a situation where, uh, you know, people sort of come to you and ask you questions and you just hope you can provide the right answer. Um, this is not a flawless sport. I mean, we make decisions. It's amazing how many decisions we make on a daily basis in terms of what we're going to cover, how we're going to cover it, who's going to cover it, those type of questions. Uh, and so you really need a strong base um, to sort of keep you grounded and sort of re- and to make those decisions um for you and it's 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 was so helpful for me in my in younger part of my career to have the roger Ogdens, the patty dennises nicole vaps tim ryan um who was assistant news director now is our content director and then to have megan jergemeyer our current news director these are great people who i can still rely on and i need that I, i journalism is a team sport uh it's done best when you sort of bounce ideas off lots of smart people and no one person in this sport has figured it out. So therefore, we have to go to other people and say, yeah, I'm thinking about this. And they'll tell you, no, you're stupid, Chris, or I think you're on the right track. That's very beneficial when it comes to journalism.
1: See, if I'm the new owner, I'm listening to that, and I'm saying hire this guy. Because I would not want to mess with nine news tradition. And again, I go back to the Denver DA's office where I did not get elected in 96. Bill Ritter did, but at least we'd grown up together under Dale Tooley. And when we got there, Beth McCann was already there as deputy DA, and Mitch Morrissey came along, and we trained him. And so it's all been in the family. Nine News, as far back as I can remember, it's all been in the family. Isn't that
2: important for I think, continuity? Well, yeah, it's for continuity's sake. It's just for sort of an understanding of, of the market. Like, uh, Denver— People who you know again i am from Denver, and so I'm sort of used to a a level of of what to expect in terms of local news and well i I think what's what's good what I hear from a lot of people a lot of times is that they'll go someplace else they'll go to another city, sometimes a bigger city, and they'll watch the local news and they'll say, "Wow, I didn't realize what we had in denver um." because I see some of the flaws in the other, in the other markets around the country. And I, I think Denver is gen, – we're generally, what, 16th or 17th top television market in the country, depending on, on depending on the year and depending on what's going on. But, like, we're, we're in the top 20 of television markets, but we're certainly not the biggest. Um, but it's nice to hear really good things about this market. And I, I don't think people understand, who aren't sort of, like, in, deeply involved in local television television news as I am, How much Denver and the news market, not just nine, but all of the stations here in Denver are deeply respected by people around the country. This is a competitive news market. But there's really good product that's put out here. And if you've seen other markets, you understand what I'm talking about. Is that there's good stuff that's done here. And I'm proud to be proud to be a part of that because I think there's really good people who work here. And like I said, I I love nine. I'm partial to nine. I think we have the best product here in town, but I also realize that we're better because of like the, the really good stations that are here as well. Seven, four, thirty-one. People are doing remarkable jobs around the city on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, but come on. Nine News and your alumni who have made it big nationally and in other markets. I think about Cheryl Preheim, who when I met her was a producer for Dan Kaplis, calling me to come on to talk about the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, Then there's Kevin Cork, I mean, Tom Costello. My God, it's a who's who of... Uh, national broadcasting
2: yeah Will Ripley who's working on CNN who was working all over the country like these are good people and like, you bring up Cheryl Cheryl was, was sort of right across when I started um, Cheryl Preheim was right across from me um, and my and my desk and I remember I had this moment with Cheryl we had been here like I don't know I she started before me and we'd probably been here like 10 years we sort of looked at each other and we sort of had this revelation of like oh my goodness, we're now the adults in the room. And it's sort of like, it's that scary moment where you sort of like realize that most people that you work for that you work with are younger than you. And we reached that point when our 30s and it was sort of intimidating, but like Cheryl's brilliant. Cheryl is, uh, she's working in Atlanta now. Um, She's just a brilliant, brilliant journalist and just these really good people. Like it's not a coincidence that we've got that caliber of people. Um, You you mentioned Tom Costello. Tom, um, when I interned here, at nine when I was in college and uh, Tom was a reporter at the station at the time here at nine and um, looked up to him. And now they see him uh, just doing incredible work at NBC. He's, he's a pro um, and that's, it's good. It's good to have that sort of level of people. You, I guess you get the idea that maybe we're doing a good job by the people that we put out. I think we put out some really good people. Right. And what
1: a crew you have now. People talk about next, like no other. Uh, local show in my memory. You put something on different in the evening. Kyle Clark, it's a different kind of dude. He's powerful in his presentation, and he's not afraid to speak his mind. Isn't he something new and different? I, or you know what? Better yet, tell me the bad
2: stuff about Kyle Clark. <laughs> I can't. I, 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 there's there isn't like Kyle is one of those um, rare persons who and like i know i think people are people, we're all well well aware there's plenty of people that don't like kyle and mostly i think it's just sort of like this sort of like they think that he has this political ideology and i i confess to you and maybe people will call me naive for this i don't know fully where Kyle is coming from a political bent. I think that's great. But to me, I do, honest- I,
1: do. I interviewed him. I sized him up. He grew up rooting for the Buffalo Bills at Western New York, his passion for country music. I'll tell you some other time off here. <laughs> go ahead. Well, I,
2: what I think, what I, here's, the, here's the brilliance of that show. And I, I think people just sort of get lost in this discussion of Kyle is the brilliance of that show is that for years television newsman has been trying to come up with a formula that's that's repeatable keep in mind we don't just to put on a newscast on a daily basis is a really difficult job and so what Kyle's show did was sort of say early on that we're not going to sort of follow that same formula that we're not going to sort of rely on spot news and, and breaking news uh, as much. We're not going to rely on on the news of the day that other newscasts are covering. We're going to sort of like make our own agenda to some extent, and it's it's brilliant. Um, and I can't say enough good about it because what they're doing is so hard to do. And the staff that Kyle has on with that show is remarkable. And and when I tell you this, this is not nonsense. That there there are TV stations around this country. That are desperately trying to replicate what Kyle's been able to do here and what Kyle and Marshall and Steve and Anusha have been able to do here and and they can't do it they they, they try and some of them have, have had varying levels of success but I think what's what's amazing is that we've been able to do that here and replicate it on a day-to-day basis because it's like you know most newscasts have a certain number of minutes for weather and sports and sort of can rely on that that show is produced all local and it's all done by us. We're a relatively small group of people, and thats it's remarkable. I had my doubts when they started. I'm like, boy, that's a tough model to do on a day-to-day basis. You can do it once a week, but doing it five days a week at the same time every day? That's really challenging, and they did it, and they've been able to do it for a number of years now, and I, I, think, that is a, I think that achievement sometimes gets, gets overlooked because that is not, trust me, from an inside perspective, that is one of the most difficult things you can do in news right
0: now.
1: Right. It's hard to replicate because it's all about attitude. And it springs from Kyle Clark's attitude. And you guys stole Marshall away from uh, Channel 7. I worked at Channel 7 for about 10 years, so I have a lot of affection. They paid me to be a legal analyst, and that was wonderful. And then I did talk radio in the afternoon where I had to make a lot of decisions about what to talk about in the afternoon, and I imagine Next is constantly reevaluating what's in the lead, what do we put in, what do we put out, but I had several hours to flesh it out, about 28 minutes when you subtract commercials, but you know what I mean, and then you you have even a shorter amount of time in TV news. Is that frustrating, or is it something it's, you learn to deal it's, with?
2: It's, 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 re- it's just something you learn to deal with. But it's really hard. Think about the newscast you watch during the day here. A lot of this is sort of filled with the news of the day. Fire happened here. Something happened over here. um, This business is expanding. This coach is coming to to Colorado, that type of thing. And there's there's a certain level of news you can sort of come on to rely on. You, You can come to rely on every day um next is moves away from that and sort of moves away from like so it's it's policy news it's government news it's political news uh, it's all sort of things that like you're not going to see on every other newscast the lead on next most times you're not going to see on other newscasts mm-hmm. and that, that's just that requires a level of commitment that again unless you're unless you're involved unless you see it on a day-to-day basis I don't think people really get how hard that is. It's one of the most difficult things to do in local news because everybody, let's face it, I mean, our, the numbers that we have of people watching us in local news are way down compared to where I was 20, when I started here 20 years ago, considerably down. And so we, we, we want to survive. <laughs> we want to have a product that's worthwhile, that keeps us all employed, that, has, that does important work. And I believe they do all of that. And it's like they, they have the next has been one of our, is if generally our highest rated show on a consistent basis. And I don't think that's a by coincidence. I think that's, that's, that's proof of really hard work that's put in by that entire team. It's
1: attitude. It's unpredictability and it's Kyle's sport coats. Let's face that truth. Right.
2: That's a, it's a heck of an assortment of sport coats,
1: but (laughs) he has his detractors and, uh, talk radio. Like I was part of that world and I saw it change drastically. And with corporate ownership that I thought went crazy for Donald Trump and uh, they got rid of Michael Medved. And then I was shocked when Dennis Prager became such a Trump fan. You're a talk radio aficionado. Were you surprised by that?
2: Well, I I think it's like, you know, I'm not making the decisions on a talk radio basis. And I think that, that, like, I think it's difficult to sort of find a, a lineup that works these days. And I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I should probably be better versed in this. I'm not sure what the target demographic is for talk, talk radio. Somewhere
1: between but, 75 and 90. <laughs>
2: right? So it's not great. Right. Right. And so you got to come up with a model too that works. And, you know, I just, I wish it wasn't sort of that sort of like low hanging fruit of like trying to just get people angry. Um, that's not the, I mean, it's actually not the hardest thing to do. It's actually fairly easy to sort of build up a level of just like here's what you should be angry about today, um, and that's uh, you know we all know that like this country doesn't need a heck of a lot more anger going on it right now. There's plenty of that to go around right now, anyways, without somebody sort of like ginning it up. And I, I think that's a challenge. And I think I you know I I. You know, I, I'm sure there's people who work in talk radio that work that wish they could come up with a better format that was more productive than than just sort of like getting angry about stuff. But you know, I guess that's how the game is played, right? But I'm
1: trying to figure out Prager and Hewitt. And true, they're not better scholars, but I thought they were pretty darn smart. And what I'm thinking in the case of Prager is that he had his Prager University a bit censored, and he got in wars with google aka youtube and people on the left and eventually when people start giving you crap then maybe you get further the other direction and i'm wondering if that has ever happened to you when everybody on the anti-mask anti-vax front is peppering you with hateful comments does do you worry that that may push you further away from that crap
2: no I, i i ideally ideally i I hope it makes me better um ideally i hope that sort of like level of like because like you know you like i said any reporter that covered COVID took a lot of anger and animosity but i think sometimes sometimes hidden in that anger and animosity sometimes a valid point um and it's sort of the job of the reporter to not just sort of like ignore criticism. And I, I think we have to learn to sort of be aware of criticism and not just sort of discount it because it's coming from somebody who's super angry and sometimes seemingly irrational. If, if, if we are doing our job as reporters is that we listen to that criticism and there can be validity in that. I think it, w- it was interesting. I, I, I believe strongly in, in, um, in the idea of vaccinations, but one of the things that I'm sort of like, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm by no stretch an anti-masker, but I think that the, uh, the effectiveness, uh, and I think the data shows this, the effectiveness of masks have been a, a bit overblown. Uh, particularly the cloth masks that most people wear, the mask that people are wearing wrong, it hasn't been a panacea. And I think it's been important for and I, and I think it's been important for me to sort of like to not just sort of like take this position that everything that comes from public health is 100 correct. Um, so th- that public health has gotten some things wrong over the course of the of the pandemic. And I think it's important for us to sort of recognize. Because again, I, I say this a lot too. But we're like, we're not the PR wing of political parties, and we're not the PR wing of. Pol- of public health. If public health says something that is wrong or incorrect or dubious in nature, it's still our job to sort of call that out. And there have been moments, uh, you know, it's like what the governor today said that 90%, I think 80 to 90% of the um, of the Colorado population is immune from the virus. And I'm like, that's not true. I mean, like w- that we have a, a, an added level of protection from the virus, but to suggest that 89% of the of Colorado population is now immune from the COVID virus. I mean, that's, that's, that, that is just simply not true. And when we hear those things, it is our obligation to sort of point that out and to roll with it. And I think that's what I've learned from this sort of steady drumbeat of criticism is that sometimes within that criticism, somebody's going to be pointing out something that you're missing. And I think we've got to be aware to sort of be able to be self-aware enough to listen to it.
1: What about that comment from Jared Polis? Is that misinformation or disinformation?
2: That's just wrong, um, and I think right, sometimes. Is, people, he, is
1: he confused? Uh, what is his motive? He's usually a smart guy. Why is he? Saying he's
2: very that? smart, and I think sometimes there is this desire—not just on Jared Polis, but on public health in general—to sort of like simplify um, the solutions to it. So when you heard months ago there were some people at CDC that even said this, it said, "You know, now that we have vaccine, you're safe." Um, well, then we found out in December that lots of people who've been vaccinated ended up getting COVID. And so their willingness to sort of simplify the the solution and say vaccines work all the time. Sort of le- then it lends itself to the to the people on the other side that, that really don't know what they're talking about. And they say, see, see, vaccines don't work. And I'm like, no, like there's like what's 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 amazing to me is the sort of the lack of of the ability of, of some people to sort of like recognize nuance a vaccine doesn't have to be perfect to do its job. You know, you talked about big, before, the, this sort of law of statistics and numbers and, and what are the odds of this or that? Are my odds better by getting a vaccine or not getting a vaccine? And so th- that's what, what what was important. And I think that oversimplification And that tendency to sort of overgeneralize, whether it's you know the governor's been really, I think the governor's been great in a lot of the aspects of this, but he's he's fallen victim to it too. This idea that we can oversimplify, because I think there's this feeling like, well, people just won't get nuance. And I think what I've learned over the last two years is that people do get nuance, and they really respect it and they appreciate it when you when you shoot it to them straight, when you tell them this is what's going on, and this is what we know. And more importantly, and I think this is, this is a transformation in journalism, too, it's not just important to tell people what you know, but it's important to tell people what you don't know. And I think that people will appreciate that and respect that more than you sort of fill in the gaps with your own nonsense.
1: Right. But you are not the only one with a broadcast microphone. And there are a lot of people getting paid. And it's remarkable how so many people say... Odepica Station, 710KNUS, Salem Media, how they are all anti-vax, and yet they're pro-relief factor, right? Relief factor will (laughs) fix you just perfect, you know? It's amazing how it works for Dr. Sebastian Gorka and Hugh Hewitt, and I guess what, Dennis Prager feels good, even though he's gotten obscenely overweight. I don't know what happened to that guy. I'd like to know, but Let's talk about other trolls on the right, because some <laughs> criticism is valid, but then you have other people doing stuff for money that just sickens me, because I see it ruining the country, and that's Tucker Carlson. What about you?
2: Well, it's it's this idea that, you know, you it is that everything is something to be enraged by. Um, and, and if you listen to Tucker's show, there's a lot of that. Here's what you should be angry about. Today And it, and it, it, it has its, its – its, it is not an ineffective type of thing. I mean if you look at sort of like th- this type of like rage-inducing sort of propaganda has been going on for a long time, for a very long time. It's just that there's more outlets that are capable of doing it now. And it's just like if, if, if you watch a show and all you're doing is getting angry about something – then 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 ask to take a sort of step back and say, well what 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 is the point of this? Because the point is to get you angry. Because people who are angry are easier to control. They're they're easier to sort of like get them to act and to get them to do something. And then I think in Tucker's case, it's like this get this idea like get people to vote, vote a certain way and have this sort of like sway over politics. And I think that's critical. I'm like he's you know, the, the argument can be made, and I think it can. And I think even for myself, that he's brilliant at it. But just being brilliant at it doesn't mean he's sort of like, like he's doing better for the country, because like everybody knows somebody. I've known people in my own family that like had existed on a steady diet of that kind of stuff, and it made them sort of like close off. It made them be uh, less willing to listen less willing to sort of like share ideas and like to you know because i i think what's important these days is you know you've got to be willing to listen to stuff that maybe sometimes it makes you uncomfortable but that's okay because it's like that's the whole idea behind the first amendment anyways is that you know you listen to x y and z and it strengthens your own belief in z because you heard x and y and i think that's that's what's sort of sorely lacking in a lot of this is like it's just the outrage factor What am I going to be mad about today? And maybe it feels good. (laughs) It feels good going down, but it's like it's awful for your system. Um, And I think that's the case with a lot of these shows. It's
1: not just awful for your system. It's awful for society because it's led to January 6th. It's led to violence. And it's led to threats against guys like you and Kyle Clark. Didn't Tucker Carlson bring up Kyle Clark and isn't it yeah. true that in this modern environment that this leads to real security concerns that you probably never thought about 20 years ago?
2: Absolutely. And I think what's, what's, key, what's critical in all that is that I call them sort of – every sort of like online threat or harassment sort of uh, program or, or system sort of be – in order for it to be effective, they're really sort of dependent on an amplifier. Where somebody sort of comes out and says, hey, um, Kyle Clark did this. And, and that amplifier that has a lot of followers, and then the followers are the ones that sort of carry out the dirty work. And the amplifier gets to sit back and say, I didn't tell my followers to do anything. I just pointed out what somebody so-and-so was, was doing. And yet I guarantee you, this is, this is where it becomes really sort of like difficult to swallow because like those amplifiers know exactly what they're doing. Um, they, they know that by putting a name out – like that with the reach that Tucker has, like they know that by putting a name out on his program that that's going to lead to a number of people, a lot of anonymous nitwits, to go out and sort of harass somebody. And they know they have that power, and the question is why don't they sort of use that – why are they okay using that power? And then sort of falling back and say I don't tell people to do anything. That's the, that's the easy cop-out. And I think that's what that's what I think it, is most. Is it it's, for
1: money, power, and ratings?
2: Of course, it is. That's I mean, but that's that's when it, when it comes to that style of entertainment, that's the goal, right? It's all of that: money, power, and ratings. And I and I think you know the argument can be made that Tucker's been incredibly successful with that, um, and it's it's certainly a, a a thing that works. But like you like you mentioned. Like how? What at what cost? I mean, we, we have a significant part of the population right now that believes in their heart, Craig, that that the election was stolen.
1: Well, right. And let's let's not talk about Tucker Carlson anymore because we have a greater example and even more successful than Tucker Carlson, and that's Donald Trump. He uh, went from being on Channel Nine, right? He was on your station, Celebrity Apprentice. Yep. Um. And he parlayed that into the presidency. And he's the guy who calls you and people like you the enemy of the people. And uh, I caught some of the backlash. You cannot uh, criticize the great leader. It's, it's shocking. I don't know what journalists are supposed to do. I know what I do in uh, my Colorado Sun column and on the podcast. I don't do the both sides thing because to me, Donald Trump – He represents a threat to democracy and to a free press and to the rule of law. All things I care about a lot. You don't have to run with that ball, but you can if you want to.
2: Well, the the only thing I'll say about that, Craig, is that I think it's it's presented a really sort of uh, interesting, fascinating conundrum for the Republican Party in a number of states, including here in Colorado, where it's inescapable, where – there are Republicans that, even though, they, 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 let's face it, uh, Donald Trump did not do terribly well in this state um, last election and even the election before that. And so it is a difficult state for a sort of a Donald Trump type of philosophy to sort of move forward. And yet, what have you seen from pockets of the Republican Party right now in the state of Colorado is that embracing of that ideology. And like there's other Republicans who sort of sit back and say, well, uh, I'm going to sit this one out. Or I'm gonna, uh, or I'm just gonna say things that maybe I don't believe in, um, while these other people sort of like gain control of the party. And the question is for the Republican Party here in the state of Colorado: is what is the direction that they're going to go in? Because they can be a viable party in this state; they absolutely can. Be. It's not, it's not as blue as I think some people think. But the same, at the same time, it's like, what is the future for that part of the Republican Party? And like. As I said before, like everything sort of gets second-guessed when you lose. And let's face it, the Republican Party has been doing a lot of losing in the state of Colorado. And there's lots of very smart Republicans in the state that want and, and perhaps even deserve sort of leadership roles in the state that could do some good things. But they're never going to get if, – if they can't get elected, it doesn't matter how good your ideology is or how, 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 how smart your ideas may be. If you can't win – it doesn't matter. And that's a really big problem for the
1: party. You are illustrating the problem because you think they really lost. And sure, you guys said on 9 News they lost by 13 to 14 percent Trump versus uh, Biden. But we all know that's a big lie. And uh, you guys are telling it. Now Trump's trying to, just like he did fake news, he's trying to say, you're the big liars. He persists. And again, just as you guys had to make a decision on COVID, whether to back vaccines or not, and not play both sides like uh, TV news normally does, when it comes to the big lie, to me, responsible journalists label it as such. It's a lie. Right. It's a lie. And and, and for me to use big lie in the context of that's what you called Hitler's big lie, it's a big one because of the threat involved And what is the role of TV news, Nine News, to say, no, Ron Hanks is not right about this. You know the issue. And and how did Nine News wrestle with this?
2: I don't think you wrestle with it. But again, if our goal is to get people closer to the truth, and as close as we can to get the truth, again, again, sometimes you don't know the full truth. And sometimes it's a little bit gray. And sometimes it's a little bit murky. But in this case, when people make allegations— that an election has been stolen by widespread fraud you are making an, a direct assault on the integrity of the american elected uh, uh, voting system which is integral to what we do as a country i mean we we need open fair free elections to sort of carry on everything else that we do if we don't have an election system that is open fair and free then then the whole system crumbles and so when you make that type of accusation y- y- you've got to come up with some sort of evidence and i think the the amount of time that has been that has been allowed to sort of carry on with this is ridiculous because it's like we've moved past that and yet because it because it's a it's, it's a political slogan now and and again our job isn't to sort of to to, to be the mouthpiece of political slogans our 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 objection as journalists uh is to sort of move forward and get people closer to, as close as possible to the truth, if not get them there. And that's just not there. Whether the, the allegations are sort of being out there, and plus, I, I don't even need—it's it's like I don't even need to say that Colorado believes that because if they didn't believe that, then you would see much more success on a statewide level than you're seeing right now. It, 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 let's face it, Craig—you know this. Like, what are the chances? of a full all-in Trump support candidate, winning the state of Colorado during this election cycle. It's really tough, I mean, Jared Polis, beating Jared Polis, uh, beating Michael Bennett, those types of statewide races, being the next AG, Those are difficult races. And what are the odds that somebody who's, the election was stolen, I'm all in for Donald Trump, what are the odds of that person, that Republican winning the election? I'm not saying it's impossible. But, but it sure as heck isn't likely.
1: Right, but it's not a completely fringe position when the majority of Republicans, dare I say, in Colorado, too, believe the big lie and that Donald Trump somehow got cheated. That's a problem. And when they watch 9 News or they probably won't because every time election integrity comes up and that's what they like to dress it up as – And in states beyond Colorado, they've passed legislation. So at some point, and God forbid Donald Trump gets reelected, I can see where that truth gets bent back and that TV anchors will have to capitulate and say the contested 2020 election results. Could you ever foresee something like that? Or does that mean America's over?
2: No, no, I I don't see a time because in order for us to do that, We'd have to be given a heck of a lot more evidence than, than is presented now. and I, think, I mean, if, if all people are looking for from their news program is a sort of like, I call it like their own whoopee, their own blanket. If all, if all people want from their local news program is to feel better about their own ideology, that's a tough place to put journalism in because that's not journalism's job. Our, our job isn't always to make you feel better about your ideology. And that's and then so that's where it comes into play with this issue. It's like our job isn't to make people who believe strongly in the idea that the election was stolen to make them feel better about that ideology. Our job is to report on what we know. let's,
1: uh, Let's say there's an impressionable young guy, grew up going to Thomas Jefferson, that kind of privileged atmosphere, probably a Republican family, grew up being a Republican but wanting to be a journalist, and he's one of the majority of Republicans who thinks you know, there was an election integrity problem with that last election, but I'd still like to work at Nine News. Could they? Uh,
2: you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if somebody if somebody has, if somebody, if somebody is sort of committed to an idea that is wrong, uh, and they can't sort of like and like, like, that's a complicated question, Greg, because I think like I think we as journalists sort of have to be open to our own biases. Like right. there's this idea like like there's this idea that, that we don't have like well, journalists are supposed to we don't have biases. Of course we have biases. We ha- also we we decisions that we made are sort of dictated by that. I, I think it's impossible to sort of erase your own background and your own and, and your own sort of like where you were raised, how you're raised, what you know, what you've learned, and sort of erase that from the ideology of being a journalist. But the job of the journalist in my mind is to sort of like recognize that you have biases and to sort of like say maybe i don't know everything and that's that's important too but at the same time if you if you're incapable of recognizing your own biases and then you use that that bias to sort of like perpetuate something via journalism that's not journalism That's that. That is propaganda, and that is not what journalism is supposed to be about.
1: Let's talk about the city we were both born in, raised in, Denver, Colorado. How's it doing right now?
2: It's an interesting time here in Colorado, in Denver, and in Colorado. There's a lot of things going on, and sort of we are the beneficiaries, and sort of the, and we're also faced with the disadvantages of being a city that's growing and so we have problems in this city and we have multiple problems in the city that are associated with growth with homelessness with drug use with with crime and right a there lot at things logan
1: so- all right there at logan and spear honestly sometimes, i've seen a lot sometimes of you buildings. see all yeah I, I i still marvel at how all those huge buildings got approved along spear when it's just a little roadway from back when we were kids uh yep. How does the infrastructure support all those buildings long
2: spear? You know, and I, 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 it, it's it's all tough. And I think it's like, I mean, you you feel it just driving away from this building. There's more people in this area. You know, I, I, Kyle likes to say this too. Kyle Clark, she this. you don't want to be in a city that people don't want to move to either. Right. Um, and so that's important as well. Like, the, you, you, like it's the, we're the, you know, it's good to be in a city that people want to come to. But I think we are going to face a whole new set of challenges. I mean, remember when, you know, years and years ago, Craig, when, when, this, when this city was sort of dependent upon a few things. And so therefore, when, the, when, when, when there would be a downturn, particularly in the energy sector, it would really impact Denver. It impacted my dad. My dad got laid off in the, in right around 1980. Um, Right when things were not going so well in the city and it would impact the entire city. We've diversified enough that we sort of strengthen ourselves and we're not sort of like dependent on one thing that could sort of make or break us. That's a good thing in Denver. But at the same time, we're becoming a bigger city. and, And because of that, there are things that are associated with bigger cities and the problems that come with it. That are, uh, that are carried with us. And I think, you know, affordability is a huge issue in Denver right now. Just being able to break into the housing market is a huge struggle. And then combine that with, with an increase in crime, the type of increase we haven't seen in in quite some time. And then, and then the, the ever present issue of overdoses drug use and and then also the separate issue of homelessness. Like these are all things that this city is grappling with. It'd be fascinating to see because as you know, we're now at the end of an of another era in Denver history with with the mayor now leaving next year. Um this is uh there's gonna be some changes here in the city and the direction that it goes in. It'd be interesting to see what direction the city wants to go in post Michael Hancock.
1: No kidding. We've both seen saying- booms and busts, busts and booms. And I've worked my entire career in downtown Denver, sometime in Lodo, sometime Uh, the government ended downtown, but I'm worried about downtown. Are you?
2: Yeah, I think it's. the downtown is just sort of like, it's it's supposed to be your showcase. It's where people go when they visit your city and that type of thing. And you want to put your best foot forward. Um, That being said, like Denver is a growing city. And like I said before, it's facing the same problems that lots of growing cities. Like, this isn't just a problem in Denver. Like I was in Portland a few weeks ago these are this is a huge these are huge problems in places like Portland and Seattle and other cities and like so cities are facing some unique challenges right. that I think sort of like how they deal with that moving forward will help define them over the next 10 years but there are very difficult challenges that are facing cities like Denver moving forward.
1: I am super grateful for your time and speaking of putting your best foot forward you are in the business of television where your appearance matters and how how do you deal with all that, the pressure to look good all the time? I like these audio venues because I don't have to get dressed up. But I I felt the exhilaration of TV and putting on the makeup. But isn't it a lot of pressure, uh, the appearance pressure of local TV? It is.
2: Uh, it, it is and it isn't. I, I, I'm not – you know, probably – for, for the betterment of our audience, I'm not on the air every day. Um, I'm on the air on specific times and mostly with sort of long-form investigative pieces or longer-form pieces. So I'm not on the air every day. But I, I will say this, Craig, and I think it's important for the audience to sort of realize that it's very apparent to me that, um, you know, that people, view, people will say things to me or that won't say things to me that they would absolutely say to some of my female colleagues. And I think that's just downright rotten. I think, I think females in this business get it much worse than men. And I think it's important for sort of men to call that out. Um, it's a problem in this industry where people feel emboldened. And this, this happens with high-profile um, jobs anywhere, where it was in politics or radio or whatever. I think people call out women in a way that they don't – because I guess they feel more comfortable being able to do that. And I think that's just flat out wrong. Um, I've watched it happen at the station for far too long where where, like females, like, look, I mean, w- w- guys, w- we'll, get co- we'll get comments about our coat or if our tie was crooked or whatever and sort of stupid things like that. But women can get it much more, get much more abuse than that. And I think that's sort of indicative of where we are still as a society where we sort of like view like people feel still feel emboldened to like be more direct with their criticism of women, and I think that's unfortunate
1: well, I know you're well grounded you got a wife that loves you, you got a child that loves you, that's who you have to please, and you have to kind of just uh, ignore the critics, realize there are trolls. I can tell you love your job, and that's great and I hope you use this as a tape to give to the new owners and say, hey, I'm ready for the big executive office. <laughs> yeah, I, I,
2: think, I, I think my bosses are well, well aware of this. I've got too much journalist in my, in my heart and soul. And for me to sort of like switch over to like full boss mode, I think that's going to be really, really tough. I love, I, 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 I love what I do. Uh, I'm a journalist at heart. I love writing stories. I love getting to meet fascinating people. And I love exposing things that are wrong. Um, I think that's a critical role of journalism. And I love that I still get to do that. I've been here 20 years and uh, I, I'm having more fun now than I've ever had at this place. And I love the fact that I get to say that.
1: I love that you're on the podcast. If people were to Google you, Chris Vanderveen, what should they put in? Hospital billing. You were famous for that. What are the other stories? That you want people to watch on YouTube, Nine News, wherever.
2: Well, most recently is it's, it's a series of stories I'm really, really proud of. Um, uh, it's been recognized around the country uh, for, with some things, with some awards, and it's really, it's just, this really important body of work that we've done in regards to um, police restraint techniques and um, law enforcement officers around the country uh, have been either improperly trained or just not trained at all about the risks of holding somebody uh, prone, meaning face down. Uh, and handcuffing them and then lingering on their backs and we've documented more than 130 deaths from around the country of people who died this way and it's like in in these instances it's not that police officers are acting with malice but they're acting with improper guidance and because of that people are have been dying underneath them very similar to how george floyd died in fact it's exactly how george floyd died and because of that uh, a number of people have lost their lives and then we've 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 found uh, more than, I think it's now more than $180 million in settlements and verdicts as a result of these deaths. So it's costing cities uh, and it's costing places like Minnesota and here in Colorado, we've had a number of these deaths where it's costing money and and more importantly, it's costing lives. And I'm really proud of the work that we've been able to do that to shine some light on this problem. It's not a political issue. It's not. It's not even an. It's not even an anti-comp issue. It's about training, and I love the fact that we get to expose those types of things. And it's not just
1: on a nightly basis. Your long-form work is outstanding, and it's not just for the six o'clock news or the ten o'clock news, but it lives on on the internet, and you get to write a companion piece. And yep. I expect lawyers all over America, maybe even internationally happen on your story because they realize, hey, this is how people die. We can do better. Read this story. Have you thought about the impact that you make on issues of of extreme consequence? You are saving lives.
2: I, lo- I love that. I love that idea that we can sort of like bring a story out and sort of say, hey, here's something that is wrong. And like, like, like you know, There's a lot of nuance to the story, but I mean, in 1995, U.S. Department of Justice told law enforcement officers around the country to stop doing this. And yet for for a variety of reasons, the message never fully got out. And a lot of people continued to die, including George Floyd, because they, they were underneath officers, under the weight of officers, and they were held prone, handcuffed, face down. And because of that, yeah, I, I, I am proud of the work that we did there. And I am proud of the fact that we've gotten calls. I've gotten calls from lawyers from around the country um, that have tried similar cases. And I, it's, it's, you know, New York Times cited our work back in November um, and the fir- really became the first national newspaper to do an investigation on the investigation that we'd already worked two years on. So, yeah, I'm really proud of that.
1: You should be. I'm proud of having you on my podcast. I hope you had a good time.
2: This is great, thank you, Craig. It's good to it's good to chat with you, and it's uh, you know it's uh, it's it's an interesting world we live in, and I'm glad we have people that feel passionate about sort of like talking about these difficult subjects.
1: He's right there at the end. You proved you are a little smarter than me and <laughs> deserving of that Betcher scholarship, but I'm not far behind, and uh, you overcame TJ pretty darn well.
2: I know I have the handicap of being a Thomas Jefferson spark.
1: There you go. Well, smaller school and I'm sure there were very fine people at that school too. Anyway,
2: they're good people. Hey, we're coming up on our 30 year uh 30 years uh, since graduation. That's nuts. That's nothing.
1: That. We call you Tying junior, up. but we had good battles on that baseball field and in the gym, basketball. There was just a little rivalry between GW and TJ and I wanted to live on, okay, between you and me. <laughs> good All right, Chris Vanderbeen. Be well. Thank you, Craig. Bye-bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you?
3: I have two dogs right now as well.
1: And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that.
3: So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you if you were to pass away, you know, who's gonna take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do but like I grew up with dogs and so if I were to pass away then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs so when you set up a pet trust you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well.
1: I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time You have 15 different locations. How cool is that?
3: It is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and, you know, meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them.
1: And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them?
3: Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to.
1: Tell us how people can get in touch with you.
3: My direct phone number is 720-394-6887 or they can go to my website which is mobileestateplanning.com and again that's mobileestateplanning.com and there's even a schedule you know there's a book an appointment link on this
4: on the website.
1: All right Michael Bailey thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's
3: Lounge. Hello, this is Michael Bailey.
1: Michael Bailey, you are always right on time. How are you, my friend?
3: I am all right. How are you, Mr. Craig?
1: I'm wonderful. Welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge.
3: Hey, glad to be here.
1: You know what we are doing lately in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge? We are fireproofing, my goodness, Colorado with these wildfires. Does that affect your life?
3: Uh, Not too much. Um, I've had clients who have lost their, I mean, more like their kids have lost their houses and things like that. Right. But um, it hasn't been too impactful on what I'm doing so far.
1: I was able to uh, avoid it so far, but uh, watching the news last night, it got me thinking. Even in the suburbs, you never know with these hard winds and dry conditions. I've never quite seen it. You've been here a long time, right, Michael?
3: Yeah, I've, I've never seen it quite be in, the, in in town this way. I mean, even just about five blocks north where we live, um, near a middle school in Thornton, um, there's a little... Uh, creek that runs through. And there was a grass fire there the other day that didn't take any structures, but got awfully close to a house that was
0: there.
1: Well, that's a lot of fear. And I'll tell you when they say get a go bag, you don't think about that if you live in Metro Denver generally. But one of the most important documents is, of course, your final will and testament, which I have in my house. But mm-hmm. if my house burns up, then I might not have it. But you know what makes me sleep easy at night as I worry about all these things? I know you have a copy in your office and everybody knows my lawyer is Michael Bailey. So they'll go right there if something happens to me.
3: Yep. And I have a copy of it. And then I also keep electronic copies of everything. So I've got scanned copies of all the documents. So we've got it multiple ways.
1: How goes your practice of law? We are kind of post-pandemic. I have Chris VanderBeen on this week, and he's been the 9 News pandemic guru. And he says, well, it's not really over, but with the mask mandate coming down and people going out, packing arenas, kind of feels like it's over, right?
3: Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I have noticed that I have a lot more people coming to see me. I don't know if people just realize that they're... You know, they've kind of confronted their own, own mortality a little bit more or what, but it seems like I've had a lot more people coming to see me. So I've had a lot kind of steadier type of business because of it.
1: Well, that's good. I'm glad your business is thriving because you offer a great service at a reasonable price. How are you going to beat that? That's why so many people go to Michael Bailey, but Uh, There's more to it than that because you've been practicing law for decades. So have I. And I take the attitude almost 100% that the client is always right. If a client wants to mask up, that's fine with me. I will mask up. I will accommodate what they want. At the same time, I think as lawyers, we are there to say, now think about this move or that move. Do you really want to say that? Do you really want to write that down? Isn't that the best service a lawyer can provide? The client, the customer is always right, but let me give you some advice. It would be like at a restaurant, you know, you really don't want to order the chicken fried steak here. It's not the best. It's something like that.
3: Right. I mean, I had it just the other day where someone's like, oh, can we do this, 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 and this? And I said, well, if you do that, this is the result. If you do that, this is the result. And they kind of got this kind of scrunched up look on their face and they're like, yeah, we don't want to do that. I'm like, yeah, I figured you wouldn't, but I'd let you read that, that conclusion all on your own.
1: Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets that must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? Can I leave all my money to my cat? What can you tell us about that? How often does it come up, Michael Bailey?
3: It comes up quite a bit, um, just because most a lot of people want to make sure that their pet is taken care of, and so people are like, oh well, where can I leave my, you know, where can I leave my dog? Where can I leave my cat? You know who's going to make sure they take care of it, and that can be very important because you want to have your your pet taken care of by somebody who likes pets. So, you know, I have I happen to have two dogs, and so I'm kind of a dog person. You know, other people who have cats, they love their cats, and that's fine. My wife and daughter are allergic to cats, so we don't have them. But um, if I were to pass away, then I want my dogs to go somewhere that they'll be well taken care of. My father-in-law is not a big pet person. He's not a big dog person. So I'm not going to send them to my father-in-law. I'm going to send them somewhere else so that someone will take care of the pets. In my case, it happens to be if you take my kids, you have to take my dogs too, because because my dogs are part of my family and my kids don't want to lose the dogs. It's a
1: package deal. What are the names of your two puppies?
3: I have Gracie, who is my 11-year-old, and Harper, who is my three-year-old doggy.
1: Great names. Now, I bet a lot of people want to leave money for their pets. What if I say, gosh, I love Skylar and I love Ico, but I love Ico a little more. I want to leave 60% of my estate to Ico, 40% to Skylar. Tell me you're going to talk me out of that a little bit.
3: So these are your uh, dogs? Yes. Okay, so first we'll say under Colorado law, you can't leave money outright to a dog. You know That's just not allowed.
1: Sorry, can, I know.
3: Yeah, but uh, what you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. And a pet trust, you put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And use that money to take care of, you know, to, is there to take care of the dog. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money. Or I have several clients who will leave it to, um, you know, take care of their pets. And then when their pets are gone, they leave it to you know, some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. So
1: How cool know. is that? Yeah, it's pretty. You, neat. you just taught me the significance of the number twenty-one. I never learned that in law school. That's the outside limit of how long a dog can live.
3: Well, it's it's yeah, outside limit of a pet trust.
1: Nice. It's sort of like the rule against perpetuities, and like blackjack, you gotta love twenty-one.
3: That's right. You know, Blackjack is a, is a great game, especially when you play it for fake tokens and don't lose money on it like I would if I tried to play for real money. But, you know.
1: Honestly, just... that's what I like about you, Michael Bailey. I mean, one, you're tall, you're handsome, you're personable, but you're trustworthy because I don't think you have vices. I don't see you ever getting in trouble with gambling or drinking or anything other than loving your family too much.
3: Well, you know that you're you're not accounting for a delicious cookie or a tasty cake. Oh, that's a week. So, yeah. yes, <laughs> I I like cookies and cakes. You know, if that's my vice, I think I'm doing okay.
1: What about during <laughs> basketball season? Did you referee again for Colorado high school sports? I did. Tell us about it. Does that uh, that's good exercise every night, isn't it?
3: it is, um, you know, the nice part is that if you go referee, you, you run up and down the court with the kids, but they have to play offense and defense. And I just have to take a couple of steps to get a good angle. So it's not quite the same level of intensity for me as it would be for them. Um, but it's, it's still a lot of fun. And you know, there's definitely different ways to exercise. But, you know, I enjoy the game and I want to stay connected to the game. And it's a good way that I can do that. Without just being a spectator,
1: you've been doing it a long time. Um, are you getting better at it? I mean, you—it is it a skill that you get better with time and
3: wisdom? It, it is. There's there's always things you can improve on. There's always things that you can learn how to do better. Um, you know, I usually go to one or two camps in the summer where there's there's a couple of officials here in the Denver, Colorado area who are top ranked um they've worked multiple final fours right um for the college level and they put on camps where they we go and basically i pay to referee games and be told and be shown all the things that i do wrong and how to improve them and you know that means a couple of people who become good friends and mentors of mine but you can always improve you know i don't think there's ever been a perfect basketball game played coached or officiated but do the best you can
1: Gosh, I admire that. And it's such a cool way to stay connected with sports. And uh, how'd the season go? Can you judge by the number of technicals you had to dish out? Have you been a little more judicious with regard to that? Because... Last time we talked, I remember you teed up a kid who cursed you under his mask or something like that. (laughs) That
3: that was last season. This season, I think they adjusted a little bit better and it wasn't nearly as, I I think this season as we were coming out of it, there was a little bit more, it had a little bit more of a normal feel towards the end of the year where um, they would just play basketball and not have to be you know COVID restricted basketball the same so
1: that's it was so kind of nice yeah that's so much better I could not have played with masks my glasses would have fogged up but I still <laughs> am excited about basketball although the Nuggets are getting their hat handed to them by the Warriors um right. I did not expect the Nuggets to win but I thought it would be more competitive
3: well, last night's game was competitive.
1: It it, it was, but it really felt like Golden State could win whenever they wanted to toward the end. Right, right. You know what I am psyched about? Dan Fickey. And you're in high school sports, and he wants to recruit Colorado kids. He's Bill Ficke's son. Big Big Bill's Pizza uh, out south uh, metro area. Bill Ficke was an assistant coach for the Nuggets, and now his son has taken the helm at Metro State, which is a pretty mm-hmm. cool place to coach. And uh, I like local kids getting an opportunity. And he says he wants Colorado guys. Don't you like that?
3: That, that is nice. It would be, I mean, it's kind of like when uh, Chauncey Billup picked, or picked uh, CU to go play his college ball. I mean, Chauncey could have played anywhere, but he picked Colorado. It's like, hey, come on, let's try and build Colorado so we can have some good basketball connections here in Colorado instead of, it goes off to all the other states.
1: You know, 20 years before Chauncey Phillips was unanimous all-city at GW, there was a mm-hmm. guy you're talking to who was at GW as well. Now, Zach said said to me, you could come up here, and if you make the team, we're going to give you a scholarship. I said, well, couldn't I do that at UCLA? I mean, come on. Where's...? <laughs> but he was probably right. I was more likely going to be a lawyer than any kind of professional basketball player, but you know what you've done with your life that's different than me, a lot of things, but I was born in Colorado, fourth Mm -hmm. generation, but you moved here and you made this your home and now you have a business, you're well-known all over Colorado and you really service people all over Colorado. You're a Colorado licensed lawyer. How and why did you choose to make Colorado your home?
3: So, I mean, my family moved here right before I turned six. So, I was born in Portland, Oregon, and, you know, they moved here right before I turned six. So, I grew up in Fort Collins and I've always enjoyed Colorado. I've always liked um, that we have the mountains, you know, so close and so we can go do things in the mountains. I'm not much of a skier, but, you know, hiking, camping, all that kind of stuff, I've always enjoyed. And I've always kind of liked that Colorado is a little bit of a it's not quite the Wild West state where we have, you know, gunfights in the streets all the time. But there's still the individual, you know, we can we can uh, kind of make our own way and have our own destiny. And it's you know, kind of we're, we're in this together, but we're also rugged individualists. And I just kind of like that approach to life that we're, you know, we can we can live together. But we can also be ourselves, and I just like the feel of the state. And, you know, it's also nice to have all four seasons. And just I, I, just, I just enjoy being in Colorado, and I enjoy how, what Colorado is and being able to be a part of life in Colorado.
1: Am I right about the fact that at this point in your career, you really have worked all over Colorado? I know you focus on Metro Denver, but how far and wide have your uh, legal – uh, adventure adventures taking you?
3: So I've often been up to uh, Fort Collins. I've been down as far south as Pueblo um, on the other side of the mountains in Grand Junction and uh, Fruta over there. Um, frequently in Frisco and uh, uh, Silverthorne. And then out to the east, I've been out into Wyman and Deer Trail and places like that. So. It's
1: like that commercial, Johnny Cash, I've been everywhere, man. That's right. And and your practice, you can go to Michael Bailey's office, and he has offices all over, and you could meet at your home, whatever, or your office. Isn't that still true? That's one of the things I loved about you being our attorney. You came to a spot to meet Trish and me, and it worked out just great. Yep. So I, I, I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. This darn world, we've had life expectancy drop. Are feelings of morbidity out there more than you've ever seen it? Do you think people are contemplating the end of their life a little more now than ever before?
3: Yeah, I think they see that, you know, with the whole pandemic, um, that, you know, it may not, you know, the the end, I mean everybody believes they're going to die. Everybody thinks it's going to be not today, it's gonna to be a long way off. But with the pandemic, it's a little bit more right in front of you. And so um, I think people are kind of understanding that a little bit more and planning for it.
1: Yes. Uh, The news makes you think about death all too much. I'm really disturbed about what's going on with Russia's war against Ukraine. I don't know if you have thoughts about that, but if you do, let loose.
3: Uh, So... Uh, you may remember that I lived in Russia um, for two years as a missionary for my church. Um, And I lived right down in Russia, right near the Ukraine border. Like, you know, some of the cities, one of the cities I lived in was five miles from the border. Another was 25 miles. Another was like 40 miles from the border. So I lived right down there, right where it's all happening. And I find that You know my friends who are still there, and the people that I know who are still there, whether they are in Russia or you know moved 15 miles to the west and are in Ukraine, they're like, yeah, I'm not sure how I became an enemy because I've moved 15 miles to the west, but they think it's they think it's dumb, they think it's ridiculous. They're like, look, we're just trying to live our lives here. Why in the world are we having a war that's being waged by a politician who has no clue about or you know just doesn't care about how it affects people and. I feel especially bad for the poor soldiers because military service in Russia is compulsory, so they don't really have a choice. They're like, "Nope, you're going to go fight here," and they're like, eh, "Great. Well, I guess we'll go do this." But um, uh, it's just not a good, not a good situation all around. I mean, in general, I'm against war, but um, you know, this one especially, I'm like, "Why are you? You're, you're fighting your you know, who really are your brothers and your sisters." I don't. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's a terrible thing.
1: It's hard for me to contemplate. You know so much more about it. You have friends and you stay in touch. Are you sometimes worried? Oh my gosh, I hope nobody's listening. I hope this doesn't get them in trouble. And it's kind of like what you said about Colorado and freedom. I mean, you and I are talking and broadcasting to the world, but if we were in Russia right now, we'd have to think about it. Now, what not we?
3: Most of the... Um, contacts that I have with them or with my friends over there are through like Facebook or other means. So, you know, we kind of talk in generalities about it. We don't necessarily call each other. If there's a nine hour time difference and things like that. But it's it's definitely uh, not the most pleasant of things to have to try to discuss.
1: Right. But Michael Bailey is used to talking about death and the end of your life. He hopes you live a long time. Trish and I trust him as our lawyer. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer.
3: So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me.
1: Time out. Is that new? MobileEstatePlanning.com. That's a good website.
3: It's a a new domain name that I picked up.
1: Nice. Way to go. You're always advancing. I like that about you, Michael Bailey. Anything else, my friend?
3: Uh, No, I think that's all we've got for today.
1: Michael, thanks so much. I appreciate you.
3: Hey, I appreciate you, Craig. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life.
4: So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's gonna happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's gonna go, you know who's gonna get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power.
1: That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works. It works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days?
4: Best way? uh, You can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to Michael Bailey Law LLC and there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use so either way is fine thanks michael
1: hey maybe you know my voice and me from the first half of my career when i was a denver prosecutor or maybe you know me from my time on the radio and now on my podcast but my real job for several decades now has been to fight in the civil arena for victims of crimes I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. If your life has been damaged through the misconduct of others, there's a great new Colorado law, and it's for you. It allows victims, as far back as January 1, 1960, to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Let's expose the truth. Let's get you some justice. Let me be your voice for a confidential consultation. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Hey, Troubadour. Hi, Craig. Happy Passover. Or did you forget? Why would I forget? Because you brought chametz into the studio. Well, I just like to keep you on your toes. Dunkin' Donut, what was in that bag? A donut? That's chametz. It was a
5: kosher apple for apple fritter.
1: Thank you for leaving it outside. Now I've learned a lot about you during this Passover because you came over. For the second seder. And yeah, there are actually four seders if you're observant. First two nights and then the last two nights. And this holiday doesn't end until eight days have passed. Just like Hanukkah, how is it that you have a different timetable for these things? My my belief
5: is that second seders and thereafter are for those who didn't get it right the first time.
1: There are different portions of the Haggadah to read on the second night. It says that right in our Maxwell House Haggadahs.
5: Which I was railing against. I'm sorry. I was not a patient man that night.
1: Right. You refused to read the words as it is said. What was your objection?
5: Well, because it means nothing and it was repetitive.
1: And then you don't like the part about how many days to count and all that numerology?
5: The numerology is minutiae in my book. Like I said, too many yeshiva students without jobs. I think you are a little
1: obstreperous. That's okay.
5: <laughs> I am feeling that way. I just, you know, that's, that's just my thoughts. But I will, I will say you led a beautiful Seder. And Trisha's brisket was great. The whole meal was wonderful.
1: Right. And we had Brad Stern over, and Trish's brisket won because you forfeited. What was up with that? All you had to do was bring a little taste of your brisket over, but what's the expression? You wimped out?
5: No. Here's what's going to happen with the brisket, okay? As you say, the brisket bake-off. The brisket bake-off is going to happen when you come to my house, and I will give you some of my brisket, okay, which I froze and I'll thaw. But I don't want your wife to be there when you have my brisket,
1: you don't think I could be a fair judge?
5: What I'm saying is, what what's going to happen is you're going to taste my brisket and realize, in fact, who makes the best brisket this side of I don't know where, Holly
1: Street. All right, that's what I realized last week. We talked about me being told Zetzebek constantly sit down, Craig, and now we're using the term Uh and. These sound like Ukrainian Russian words, don't they? I mean, when you think about Zetzevek, that could be a city in Ukraine that's getting bombarded right now.
5: It has that sound.
1: And it's sad because these are our people, and not so much you, although maybe on your mother's side, but your dad came from Germany, and I'm reading the book recommended by Rabbi Zwerin called Bloodlands, about all the crap that happened in Eastern Europe, and It's still going on today, and you and I had one of the most memorable visits to a park in my life, and it's kind of stunning how at my advanced age, I never really had been to Bobby R. Park before, even though it's in my neighborhood. You've been in Colorado since 72. It was your first visit. Tell everybody about it.
5: Yeah, up to this point, Babiar had been just a funny name that I'd passed, one kind of wonder about and then forget about. I had no idea, hadn't heard about what happened, transpired there at Babiar. And it was a very moving experience. Thank you for for thinking of uh, asking me uh, to go with you last week.
1: We went on uh, Tuesday and we walked around and They have those Linden trees, 100 for the 100,000 victims. Now, there was a two-day slaughter of Jews when the Nazis first took over Kiev. And this is where numbers do matter, Troubadour, because I have burned it into my brain now that over a two-day span, those Nazi bastards, they killed 33,771 people, mainly Jews that they took to the ravine at Bobby R, stripped them of their clothes, shot them dead, then made them tumble in the ravine two days, 33,771. And this is Denver's Holocaust Memorial. And Sunday, there's a big event uh, in connection with Holocaust Remembrance. And Sunday at 11, if you want to join me there, I'm writing my Colorado Sun column about it. Rabbi Zwerin, my guest last week, his poetry graces the place, and I thought it was so cool, the imagery of a falling leaf with a teardrop in it. You and I talk about trees and leaves all the time, don't we, Troubadour?
5: We do, yes. And as far as... uh. Right, as far as as what happened at Babi I mean, it really defies imagination. That's a lot of people. I mean, it's it's a it's a middle it's a mid sized city that they came and 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 murdered. And, it's uh, a
1: little bigger than Denver, Metro well, Denver.
5: Well, I'm talking about just that two day event, the thirty three thousand. Right, then, but
1: what I'm saying, imagine them coming to Denver and dropping off leaflets in the Jewish area that if you don't come to Babi we're going to hunt you, we're going to kill you. Right. So then, all these Jews gathered there, and that's where they were killed.
5: And, and Craig, just to as I remember reading the, the the stone, you know, the etchings in the stone. Uh, over the next two years, there were two hundred. You just said a hundred thousand. You say numbers matter. They said two hundred thousand people
1: perished. At at Babiar over the two-year period. There you go. And numbers do matter because some say 100,000, others say 200,000 over that two-year stretch. And if you read Bloodlands, which I recommend, it's about what bastards Stalin and Hitler were. And they would kill people in so many different ways. About half of the Jews who were killed, the 6 million, were shot to death. Most people just think of the gas chamber. But being shot and gassed was kind of a luxury compared to the people who were worked to death or starved to death. Stalin came up with starving people to death. And I will warn you about this book because in Ukraine it got so bad that they, some people resorted to cannibalism. I mean, it got that desperate. And you could say, gosh, I'm so glad we're past that time. And yet today I watch on the news a little old lady huddled for five weeks in a hole under the movie theater in Mariupol, and she's scared, and she's she's just beyond herself. She's crying. Her child's trying to comfort her. What can you say? And uh, these people are too old or weak to be a band. Well, there's no way out of Mariupol. So all this crap that I'm thinking happened, Bobby are way back in... You know, from '41, uh, that was a long time ago, before I was born. This is happening now, and it's the same evil forces where life means nothing to these people. It just blows me away, Troubadour.
5: Right, right, and like you said, as far as Stalin starving his people, it seems like that's the uh, that's the Russian strategy right now. Essens- essentially, is is uh, isolating uh, Mariupol and and uh, just choking off its supplies, including food.
1: Right. Who acts like that? I mean, the world has to step up to this or it's, it's ridiculous. Rabbi Zwern was really strong about standing up to Putin. And you know how I feel. It's a tough call. And I, I think Joe Biden's doing pretty well. You did pretty darn well with the song that's apropos of what we're talking about, whatever the future may bring. What inspired that?
5: Um, My mom's uh, had not my mom was sick at the time and had, uh, but she was. I could see that she wouldn't be living very long. It was. It was written right near near the time of her death.
1: Oh my gosh, and uh, I mean the words are haunting, and you have an optimistic attitude. Who knows what the future holds? But here it's kind of sadness, and how you're going to get through it. And you got to keep the faith. And to me, you pray into to the Lord. And then toward the end, you say, "I'm not talking about religion." What's up with that?
5: I didn't. Well, because I'm not. I don't consider myself religious, um, in the sense that I'm. I'm not uh, an active temple goer. And um, and for the same reason, I was railing against the the Haggadah and even the idea of a second Seder. So, um, but the spirit, the spiritual quest, longing for. Um, you know, for, um, I, I guess, uh, um.
1: It's like what you talked about in your other song. It's better to believe. It's good to believe. it's,
5: It's like what I was talking about. Right. In this case, I was the, what, what, what my mom was going through was very painful. And, and by, by the same, um, token, my, my father, my whole family, it was a hard time. So we, you know, yes, it was a, it's a, it's a, it's showing faith that, that the future will bring life in its sweetness again.
1: Right. Because your mom, um, she did suffer. Your whole family suffered. And then she passed away. And uh, life goes on. Same with Ukraine. I hope we get past this and in a good way. Because if it goes in a bad way, it's not good for anybody. Your song... It's so beautiful. Again, you bring in background singers at the end. Do you remember that, who they were?
6: Yes.
5: Yeah, that was Liz Ager. She, she, um, she, she harmonized with herself. That's one woman, but she did some beautiful harmonies.
1: And I don't want to take you on toward the end of Passover, but you are one of the most religious people that I know, not in an organized religion sense, but just with this song, Talking to the Lord. I mean, what else would that be?
5: Right. There's a lot we don't see in, in, this, in this life. And, and so I like alluding to the, the mysterious, the unknown.
1: Well, there's a beautiful song, perfect for the times. Once again, a gift from our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Give a listen to Whatever the Future May Bring. Thank you, troubadour.
5: Thanks, Greg.
6: Faith and to learn from Whatever the future may bring Oh Lord, please help us To move forward with faith And to learn from Whatever the future may bring future may bring if we must face failure let there be successes too every day be it sun or be it rain help us learn gratitude Us. Mm-hmm.
1: crime victims for the last four decades there's a great new colorado law it allows victims as far back as january 1 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen if you were sexually assaulted now is the time to come forward call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800 ask for craig craig silverman a voice for victims Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your purple Apple podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review and your personal review. Kind words, appreciated. Thanks so much. Tell your friends. Hey, I told you it was going to be a heck of a show. Again, Troubadour Dave Gunders, great song, Whatever the Future May Bring. Thank you, Michael Bailey, as always, for sponsoring the show, for your good commentary, your level head, the way you service your clients, my listeners. I think it's terrific. And Chris Vanderveen, take this podcast, use it as your job interview. Next thing you know, you will be running Nine News. If you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend. You know what to do. Five stars, subscribe, all that sort of stuff. Much appreciated. Until next time, have a great week.
0: Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.